Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 123 of Just the Zoo of Us. On this week's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with a guest who brings tireless passion and enthusiasm for bats that I believe you will find wearing off on you before this episode is over. If you've ever been curious about vampire folklore, the intricacies of echolocation, nocturnal arms races, or bat friendships, this episode's got a little bit of everything, so settle in and enjoy. Just the Zoo of Us presents Vampire Bats with Nate Marshall. everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here again with just the zoo of us. This is, as always, your favorite animal review podcast. And I'm excited this week because we're talking to a friend of ours. This is Nate Marshall from the Give Bats a Break Bat Advocacy social media campaign all over the place. (laughs) Say hi, Nate. Hi, everyone. So we have sort of, you know, been buddies for a while on Twitter and such. So it's really nice to actually get to talk to you. But our friends listening might not know who you are just quite yet. Can you introduce yourself a little bit for our friends listening? Yeah, of course. So I am, as Ellen said, Nate Marshall. I have a Twitter account called Give Bats a Break. I have a podcast called Give Bats a Podcast. And I am all bats all the time, baby. The bat guy. I'm the bat guy. You know, it's funny, and I've mentioned this elsewhere, but I I always thought that if I went back to like a high school reunion that I'd go back as Pastor Nate or something like that. And now if I ever go back, it's going to be as Nate the bat guy, which (laughs) would probably come out of left field for, for a lot of people. But it wouldn't come out of left field for me because I've known my whole life how much I've enjoyed these animals. That's interesting. Is the bat passion, is that just like a more recent development or just something that you've gotten more vocal about? My affection for bats roosted and hibernated for a very long time. So I loved bats as a kid. Every year when teachers would ask, you know, what what do you want to be when you grow up? It was bat scientist. That was mm. my pat answer. And I I did. I loved them. I have this project that I did at one point and I've got a picture of it. The opening line was in quotes and it was, "Hey, you over there, you want to know a lot about bats?" <laughs> and then the person responds, "Yeah." And then I proceed in this project to just like list off all these bat facts. Like that was, that was me, you know? And that's now the podcast tagline. And that's, <laughs> it should have been, it, it isn't, but I might make it that now. Hey, you over there. And that, I mean, that's essentially what my Twitter account has turned out to be. But fast forward to like junior high and high school, and I'm a subpar student at best. And relatable. And I enjoyed animals and nature and science still, but bats didn't happen again for me until really the beginning of the pandemic. And it was because of people collectively sort of associating bats with with COVID. Yeah. I was like, you know, I don't like this. This makes me sad. I wish people could understand what they are and appreciate them for for what they are. And so I started a Twitter account, which initially was going to be like a picture an hour scraper account, which is not a great idea. 
I'm so proud of you for diverging from that path. <laughs> yeah. So that I, I didn't know, you know, like I just, I just knew that like there were other accounts that did that and like right. they did not relative numbers. Right. And I was like, and if you don't know any better, that seems like, you know, a very wholesome, you know, thing that seems it was totally like, fine. Look, the, there, there are thousands of people liking every single picture. That means there's thousands more that are actually seeing it. So if I can get that many people to see the bats, then that would be great. Right. That was my thinking behind it. Quickly discovered that was like not the way, right? That's not, not the, the jam. <laughs> and um, so sort of deviated from that path and learned the importance of photographer attribution and context, all that stuff. <laughs> right. And then also that like, I just made a terrible bot account, like, because I'm not a bot. Uh, <laughs> I am a human. So I couldn't keep myself from like interacting with people. And the, I loved it. I loved the, the, the comments and I loved disseminating knowledge. I didn't, I was so small at one point that I was very easily bullied. <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> when, when, uh, long story short is after about only three weeks of my account existing, I had already decided I wasn't going to be a bat picture account. I was going to be like a bat evangelist account and love it that is a glow up if i've ever heard one uh and then the pope happened yes okay i was gonna ask about the thing with the pope <laughs> the pope yes that pope <laughs> the, right the, that one the the hat the the robes the vatican the pope the so the the pope has a social media account do you think it's really the Pope that's like sitting there with the phone? <laughs> you know, I don't actually know. I've got no evidence one way or the other. My assumption is probably not. I have to believe that he has a, a social media team, which, you know, however you score that gig, <laughs> I don't know. Great. That's awesome. I'm glad that you're doing it. Um, <laughs> great work. All that seminary training and, and theological formation to be the, the Pope's Twitter guy. So <laughs> Pope tweets. <laughs> I wish that was the name of the account. I wish that was the handle, Pope <laughs> Tweets. It's not. So there's this tweet that is sent out that is actually here. Let me find it. We have citations. <laughs> I do. I've got receipts. Listen, if I were in your position, I would have had these tweets framed and hung on my wall. Like this would have been like my crowning glory. <laughs> I might end up, that's actually not a terrible idea. I, I'm. I might end up printing that in my response and putting them side by side in some <laughs> in some frames. So the Pope's person uh, quoted a homily of his from, I think, six-ish years ago, like 2014 or something. And it says, when we are in a state of sin, we are like human bats, quote unquote, who can move about only at night. We find it easier to live in darkness because the light reveals to us what we do not want to see. And on and on it goes. And so... I was like, you know, I get what he's saying. Like, it seems pretty obvious to me that, like, as humans, generally, when we do naughty things, we would prefer to not be seen while doing them. Sure. That tracks. Right. We feel, like, kind of weird about it and, you know, don't look at me. So, I get that. However, pandemic, COVID, people already hating on bats, let's not add, like, another dimension to this. Like, bats are just sitting there minding their own business. They're like, hey. What, what the heck, man? <laughs> What the heck, Papa Frank? And so I responded to him and said, you know, I offered a, a theological reflection in response uh, in which bats were an object lesson of how 
being more like them actually makes us better humans rather than worse humans. And in that context, actually more like Jesus rather than less like Jesus. And that little four tweet response went viral. Uh, in, in the course <laughs> of two days, I went from less than 200 followers to over 5,000. So like, if slow growth is like the name of the game, I did, I failed. It just like, <laughs> boom, it, it hit and it was this tidal wave of engagement. Sink or swim. <laughs> Dude, and I, whew, I was struggling. I, my, my little bat wings were having a hard time keeping on oh, top no. of the water there. Uh, it was so much. That's like when bats have to drop down from <laughs> hanging upside down. It's like, you, you better fly. <laughs> yeah, you open them up. And if you don't, you were just like a, I don't know, a pine So cone. you fell from the roost. <laughs> I fell. I dropped and I felt the, the wind going underneath this one and it just <laughs> popped them out. And, uh, and here I am a year and a half later. So each tweet, you know, was getting retweeted, quote tweeted, comments, likes, and then I was getting DMs and the media picked up on it. So had some mm-hmm. smaller outlets that started writing articles and then Board Panda, which is like one of the bigger ones, caught wind of it. And then at one point, I also had the Wall Street Journal reach out to me and a senior editor from Wall Street Journal was doing a piece on being a bat person in the midst of the pandemic and what that's like and so did a little interview with them and mm. it was crazy it was yeah. it was a wild time and i all of a sudden went from being a nobody that i knew names but names didn't know me to now they know who i am and all these big bat researchers and scientists whose names i've known for a long time are following me and interacting with me and i'm like am i bat scientist now <laughs> am i is this legit? <laughs> and so what I wanted to be as a kid, which was among the ranks of bat researchers and bat scientists, came true. I'm yeah. not technically a bat scientist, but I'm sort of in this world now where I'm connected with so like hundreds, if not thousands of them, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's a dream come true for me. It's amazing. That's awesome. And it's also, I think, a great example of the perspective that's needed within, you know, scientific communities is like, people that are getting involved with the science and with the information just from the passion of it, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, is like, the the reason that bats in particular tend to have a hard time with conservation efforts is because they're not one of the big sexies. You know, they're not, they're not one of these flagship animals that gets a bunch of conservation funding. And it's partially because the money follows the interest. There, if there's no interest on a particular species or, or taxa, the dollars aren't going to follow. And so part of what I'm hoping to do with whatever it is that I'm doing, all, all of this <laughs> bat stuff is to hopefully like catalyze this interest in people that didn't realize that they were really, that these are actually really fascinating animals, wildly diverse one from another, and that they do deserve our conservation efforts. They do deserve our dollars and that they're really wonderful animals. They are. They really are. And what better icon of the unfairly maligned creature than the common vampire bat? Because they have not, they've had a rough time of it in our pop culture landscape. (laughs) The the vampire bat has been not treated super kindly by our media. Bats generally, a lot of the time when we attempt to make bats palatable 
to people, intriguing, interesting. A lot of what we do is try to show people the benefits. It's very anthropocentric. This particular discussion happens a lot, like it's very human-centered, very, um, what, what are they doing for me? Which is a hard mentality to break out of. And so, for those that need that, it's like, okay, bats have this benefit, this benefit, this benefit, which I don't mind having that conversation because again, for the person that is like, well, what, what good are bats? Well, here, here's the good things. And then you can work through that to the intrinsic value that they have and why they're worth saving precisely because they are. It's like they, they're worth having here because they made it. They're here. And it's like, they should probably stay here. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen if, if we lose an entire species or, or the entire order of animal more broadly. So we'll go through some of the ecosystem benefits that they provide and some of the reasons why it's cool for humans to have bats around. Vampire bats don't even really fit that mold. It's like, there's very little that you can point to in a vampire bat and say, Hey, this is a great ecosystem service it provides. It's a tough ask. <laughs> Only one thing comes to mind, and I'll, and I'll get to that when we get to the ranking. But yeah, vampire bats are, they, they've got it hard. They've got it really hard when it comes to, uh, popularity in the, in media and Hollywood and, and everything else. But they are insanely fascinating, it, which we will get into. But they, they're, they're so stinking cool. They're so they sophisticated <laughs> and they deserve all of your hard eyes. Uh, it, just all, <laughs> all, anything that you can muster affection wise, they are worthy of it. I promise. We'll tap into it. We'll find we it. It's lurking deep within your heart. I just know it will break through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of the disdain for vampires comes with like the association with the cryptid vampire of like the, a person that might feast on the blood of other people, which is so interesting because that mythology is so heavily associated usually with European folklore, but the vampire bat has nothing to do with that part of the world at all, right? They're like all the way on the other side of the globe. <laughs> yup. It's a pretty interesting story, but yeah, the, the vampire mythos is far older than our knowledge of what we now call the vampire bats. We imported the name to the animal, not the other way around, which a lot of people don't know that. So that narrative is so deeply ingrained at the cultural level that like that's the name for them, you know? Hello, it's me. But after we recorded this episode, I wanted to expand on this just a little bit because I find it super interesting. So according to an article by Gary F. McCracken in Bats Magazine, which is issued by Bat Conservation International, even though vampires occur in folklore all over the world, dating back thousands of years, they had not been culturally associated with bats by Europeans until Irish author Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, which came out in 1897. That being said, bats play a lot of different roles in the folklore and mythology of Mesoamerica, where vampire bats are found, including notable figures like Kamazots, a Mayan bat god referenced in the Quiche text, the Popol Vuh. In fact, some appearances of bats in Mesoamerican stories are far more flattering than ours, giving them a lot more credit for their role in the ecosystem. Okay, back to it. So yeah, vampire bats are, they are, first of all, they exist. <laughs> they are a thing. Uh, second of all, most people, I think, when they think of bats, they think the vampire bat is the first thing that comes to mind. And understandably, they, because they are sort of a wild thing. But 
as of five minutes before our conversation, the current bat species count is 1,439. So many bats. So 1,439 different species of bats globally. Of those, only three species are vampire bats. So just an incredibly small number of, of the total species. And they, of course, there are other bats that eat blood because they're carnivorous and they, they eat the blood along with the rest of the animal that they happen to be consuming. But there are only three species that eat only blood and they are all in central and northern South America. And the common vampire bat is the most numerous of, of those three. And they're not very choosy when it comes to which blood they're consuming. It can be cattle, it can be goats, it could be chickens, it could be, could be anything. So the other two are the white-winged vampire bat and the hairy-legged vampire bat. Very stylish names. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, they're freaking cute. I'm talking like, <laughs> in fact, if you look, if you go to Google and type in cute bat, hold on, I want to see if this is still true or not. I just, I've Googled cute bat. You know, there's too many flying oh. foxes here. Yeah, I was going to say I'm, these are all flying foxes. I see a pallid bat. That's really cute. What if we type in cute? I'm almost afraid of what I'm going to find when I type in cute vampire. But here we go. Yeah, it's what I expected. I think I know exactly who it is. <laughs> Anime and cosplay. Hold on a sec. <laughs> cute vampire bat? Okay. So yeah, if you type in cute vampire bat... That's actually pretty cute. That first one, is it the... Does it say... Uh, cutiest vampire bat ever yes yeah so that is a hairy legged vampire bat that looks like a little pug or like a french bulldog or something and then a couple down on the right there's there's a couple it says baby bats it's like a couple that are like siblings or something oh yep i see him now so those are not babies those are fully grown dan riskin is is the name of the researcher that took that picture he is a vampire bat expert one of one of a few in the world and those are white-winged vampire bats, but those tend to also be quite cute and like very long-lived. They don't seem to age. So they fit actually a lot of the like stereotypical vampire stuff. Bats are enormously long-lived compared to animals of their size. They will say on average are, are live somewhere between 15 and 20 years in the wild. The longest lived bat that we know of in the wild is 41 years old. And that was in wow. the UK, I think. It's a, it's a European bat. And I think the last time we saw it was in the UK. 41 years old. And we don't have any evidence that it's dead yet. Oh, geez. Uh, it could, we could end up netting that thing again, at which point it, could be still it would be older. Yeah. So they're extremely long lived. Uh, they don't show signs of aging the way that other animals can but the the blood eating and everything else so yeah so vampire bats it's easy to like fit them into the the vampire mythology and say like oh well here we go but they can actually be pretty adorable and this does not count as my aesthetics uh ranking <laughs> by the way we'll, we'll, we'll get to we'll that. get to it it's okay yeah. so you mentioned to me earlier that vampire bats belong to a family called Philostomidae. Can you tell me a little bit about Philostomidae? So these are the New World leaf-nosed bats. And these are primarily what they sound like. Mainly in Central and South America, we have maybe one or two species that make their way up into Southern or Southwestern North America. There are 222 species in Philostomidae, and they exhibit 
just an astonishing array of variety in their morphology, the, the way they look, the wings, the way their wings have evolved, their habitats, behavior, diets. Among all the bats, all 1,439 of them, really the only thing that connects them together is the fact that they are flying mammals. Uh, otherwise, they are very different from one another, and the most am amount of diversity, arguably, from what we know of bats anyway, is concentrated within this, this family of bats. So, thankfully, only 14 of the 222 are classified by IUCN as vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. So, that's like only 6% of all total um, philostomids. There's also a number that are data deficient. 36 are data deficient of the philostomids, which means we just really can't say much about them at all. There's not enough sure. research that's been done. They're really hard to catch. Like, you can imagine that bats... They have a lot of mechanisms. Their echolocation is very highly refined. And so they're very, they're, they can be tricky to catch and to find. They, they are aware. I would imagine. They know. <laughs> and they've also evolved over all of these millions of years specifically to be in that place and not be found. Mm -hmm. Right. So when like humans come tromping through and they're like, Hey, um, I'm definitely going to find this bat. And they're like, you're definitely not actually. You're definitely not. <laughs> There's a bat that I just posted about a couple days ago called the Fijian monkey-faced bat, and mm. it is what it sounds like, first of all. And second of all, it is wildly difficult to find. In a paper that was released in 2015, they, they reported that they spent over 1,880 hours misnetting, putting up the, the thing that they used to, to trap the bats with, the misnets, almost 2,000 hours <laughs> worth of misnetting, and they caught one. <laughs> one bat out of 2,000 hours. Can you imagine the celebration that they had when they caught that one <laughs> out of 2,000 hours? Popping bottles. It's like catching a shiny Pokemon. <laughs> All of that time. And there's only been IUCN reports that they only have caught six individuals total, like ever. So all that we know about this one species of bat is only known from six individuals. Bat research is very young compared to maybe other animals. There are so many basic questions about bats generally and then about individual species that we still don't know the answer to. And it's Kind of frustrating at one level, but really exciting at another because it means there's so much research left to be done, so many adventures left to be gone on. There's a lot to do. So anyway, back to the New World Leaf Nose Bats. They are amazingly diverse within themselves, and only 6% of them, like I was saying a second ago, are endangered compared to 16% of all known bats. So they have a lower ratio of endangeredness compared to the rest of bats, which is Kind of a happy story, but it also makes sense because a lot of them are concentrated around the equator and that's sort of a like very biodiverse area anyway, globally, but it's also a lot of hard to access or nigh inaccessible areas where we can't even get to where the bats might be to do more research. So it's hard, hard to say for sure on the ones that we don't know much about, but the vampire bat belongs to this family. It is a leaf-nosed bat. And leaf nose, since I haven't even mentioned what it is yet, a leaf nose <laughs> is this fleshy bit on their nose that typically will stick up in some triangular or rounded formation that gives it 
the ability to echolocate with precision and it sometimes acts as like a, like a dish to radiate their echolocation out forward. Um, a lot of them do echolocate through their nose as opposed to echolocating through their mouth. So there's huh. actually a few methods of echolocation. Some of the fruit bats, there's some evidence that they actually kind of like clack their wings together while they're flying. Huh. And that will send out echoes that help to sort of generally orient themselves in space, which I find interesting. I didn't know that that was a thing until right. I started really diving into bats. Wow. And then you've got vocal echolocation, which is what it sounds like. It's them using their vocal cords like, ah! just to <laughs> kind of find their food. And sometimes it echoes back to them and it happens to be a meal. And that's great. Tactical screaming. You know what I mean? You got, we all do it for some reason or another. Yeah, but when I do it in like cheeseburger <laughs> bobbies, I'm like disturbing the peace or whatever. I don't know. Um, and then there's laryngeal echolocation, which is tongue clicking. They use their tongue to send out echolocations. And then there's a variant of the vocal, which is they like through their nose instead of, <laughs> instead of ah through their mouth. So most of the, the leaf nose bats, they, they're doing it through their nose. And so their noses have developed these really complex shapes and folds and ridges and forms to best concentrate that echolocation beam in order to hone in on their prey. Or in the case of like some pollen and nectar feeding bats, it's not so much about prey in the sense that they're hunting because flowers don't move very quickly, as you can imagine. They're pretty, pretty slow going creatures, uh, <laughs> for a lack of better terms. But they do, they have, there's evidence of coevolution between bats and certain plants where the leaves or the petals or whatever on these plants are actually shaped, designed to reflect the echolocation back to the bat specifically in mm -hmm. a way that it can interpret and know that it's heading towards something that it can eat. It's like the opposite of what bugs are doing. Like you've seen like moths that have like crazy adaptations to specifically like muffle the sound. They're like, please do not find me. <laughs> yeah. Since you brought it up, the moths, they're furry and fuzzy and it's to absorb as much of that sound as possible and reflect as little of it back to the bat as possible. So that's one mechanism. Another is, I don't know that they're moths, but there's something, I can't remember what it is now, but there's something that will, as soon as it hears a bat echolocate, it will just like tuck its wings in and just drop out of the sky. Oh. <laughs> See ya. Gone. Can't get well, me, sucker. If you're a bug and you're small enough that your fall damage is going to be negligible, you know, it's like you might as well, right? Might as well. And so they just tuck them wings in and just go straight down. It's the tiniest nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tiniest nope. That's exactly what it is. Hey, it's later me again. I looked this up and I found the article from the University of Bristol that Nate was thinking of. It's from May of 2020, and it is titled Crickets Eavesdrop on Bat Echolocation Calls and Drop from the Sky to Evade Capture. A quote from the article says... Sword-tailed crickets of Barrow, Colorado Island, Panama are quite unlike many of their nocturnal flying insect neighbors. Instead of employing a variety of responses to bat calls of varying amplitudes, these crickets simply stop in midair, effectively dive-bombing out of harm's way. Neat stuff. All right, back to the episode. 
So then there's other moths that will jam the bat's echolocation. They, they have this little organ inside of them that has like 40 or 50 ridges on it and a muscle that they can contract and go against it. And it will send out this just enormous amount of clicks in a second. Like, I'm talking thousands. Like, they just like go back and forth (laughs) real quick. And it sends it out and it jams the bat's echolocation. And then there are bats that will jam other bats' (laughs) echolocation because they're like, nah, I'm getting that moth, fool. Not you. And so they like, if Ralph finds a moth and Chris notices that Ralph found a moth, then, then Chris will be like, your mom and <laughs> and that makes ralph blind for a second and, it, and he loses sight of the moth and then once that's done he's like no your mom and then now chris can't see the moth and they just kind of keep doing that back and forth until one of them gives up and whoever remains is the one that gets the moth so they kind of like trash talk each other while they're hunting <laughs> which i just think is brilliant i love that so much it's a vicious arms race it really is the spectrogram for it where you can see the vocalizations it gets so messy (laughs) it's really i mean very very sophisticated stuff and so kind of back to your point yeah the moths plants all of these different things that bats have evolved with and around have developed tactics to either make themselves more or less desirable by the bat or more seen or less seen by the bat in order to, well, ultimately it's to survive, right? Like in both cases, whether they want to be more seen or less seen, it's like more seen in the case of the plants so that they can be pollinated and propagate. In the case of prey items, it's less seen in order that they can go on to propagate and continue as a species. Not be dying. <laughs> not not unalive themselves. <laughs> yes. That's interesting. I didn't know that their nose like had an impact because I had seen pictures of vampire bats with their funky little faces that they kind of remind me of like in Star Trek, how like when they want to differentiate an alien from a human, a lot of times they'll just do some funky stuff with their face with like weird prosthetics on their face or something. Like when I see a vampire bat, it makes me think like that looks like a Star Trek alien, you know, like that looks like that's a Ferengi right there. (laughs) Dude. And it's like somebody mentioned this on Twitter. There's so many bats that if you were to have seen them, in Star Trek, let's say, you'd be like, that is so out of this world that like, no, nothing will ever look like that. (laughs) But then there's these bats that like have these just wonderful rose petal leaf noses, you know, or like big gothic cathedral noses (laughs) or whatever else. And it's like, Wow, that's a thing. They've gone off script entirely. They have lost the plot. That that did not come from a special effects department. That came <laughs> from nature and many years of evolution. Wow. <laughs> it was way ahead of our imaginations. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. And then it kind of goes both directions. There's some bats that have evolved like giant nose leaves. And then there's one bat in particular called aptly the wrinkle-faced bat and its taxonomic name is centurio senex it literally translates to old man that like it's like the old man bat and the wrinkle-faced bat is difficult to look at very pruney yeah oh it's, it's been sitting in the bath for a while i don't know about this one <laughs> I'm really glad that's not our topic of this episode, because I don't think I would be able to get into an aesthetics ranking for this one in good faith. It's, it's challenging. It's low. I mean, like, <laughs> we're going to be honest here. It It's hard to tell what the face, where the face is. And it's, its eyeballs just sort of like look like they're just kind of like, sort of like placed 
on top. Like they don't they don't like recess at all. They don't have sockets. They just sort of like bloop. This bat looks like the arbiter from the Halo games. <laughs> have you ever <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you played the Halo games? It's and you been know a the long arbiter? time. I I've not thought about I haven't thought about it, but I totally get that. Look up the Arbiter from Halo, and you yeah. tell me that that's not exactly what that bat looks like. Yeah, no, you're you're <laughs> you're speaking truth here. So this bat is also part of the New World Leaf Nose bats. They echolocate, and there's something about the ridges in their face that helps them do that. There's also some thought that maybe like some of the other wrinkles. They're they're a fruit eating bat, and so. They will like put their face just like full into a fig and just on the fig. And then all the fig juice, they think that like the wrinkles help to sort of like funnel the majority of it down to its mouth so that it gets as much of it as possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the males have this fold, this mask that they can pull up over their face, like to just underneath their eyes. And they aren't 100% sure what that's for. They think it has something to do with sexual reproduction and attractiveness to females. But we don't know for sure. Weird bat stuff. Weird bat things. <laughs> Hi there. We are going to take a super quick break to hear from a couple of our buddies over on the Maximum Fun Network. When we return, we are getting into our ratings for the vampire bat. So stay tuned. Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Jared Hill. We are the hosts of Fanti, the show where we have complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the things that we really, really love sometimes, but also have some problematic feelings about. Yes, we get into it all. You want to know our thoughts about Nicki Minaj and all her foolishness? We got you. You want to know our thoughts about gentrification and perhaps some positive? question mark uh -oh. aspects of gentrification we get into that too every single thursday you can check us out at maximumfun.org listen you know you want it honey so come on and get it <laughs> period i'm judge john hodgman and i'm bailiff jesse thorne 10 years ago i came on jordan jesse go and judged my first dispute is chili a soup it's a stew obviously the judge has dispensed a decade of justice. He's the one person wise enough to answer the really important questions. Like, should you hire a mime to perform at your own funeral? After they cry, I want them to laugh. Do you really need a tank full of jellyfish in your den? They smell like living creatures decaying. <laughs> Only if they are decaying. Yeah, which they will be. Real people, real justice, real comedy. Winner of the Webby Award for Best Comedy Podcast. The Judge John Hodgman Podcast, every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. Let's talk our ratings for bats. We've been here a long time already. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't done our ratings yet, but it's okay. Um, let's talk ratings. So if this is your first time listening to this podcast, what we do is we review animals by rating them out of 10 in different categories, the first of which is effectiveness, which are adaptations to the animal's body that give it an advantage, help it do the things that it's trying to do, things that are built in to the animal that let them thrive i guess what do you give vampire bats out of 10 for effectiveness vampire bats easy 10 out of 10 full marks <laughs> full full marks here's the thing the common vampire bat has some really astonishing adaptations that help in like every conceivable way so 
they're very comfortable on the ground. They have the ability to walk and even to run. They have a full, like, running gait. That's surprising. They only go at, like, I don't know, two and a half, I think, miles per hour top speed. There's actually a gif of a bat on a treadmill in the lab and turn the treadmill on and, like, let's see what this bat does. And discovered that, like, all four limbs actually leave the ground at once. And then they can push themselves off the ground with this, like, giant Superman push-up and take flight right from the ground. Which is a really necessary adaptation when you are among very large animals that could possibly crush you. It's like you don't have time to scale something and then, like, drop from it like a bat is known for doing. You have to be able to just, like, make a quick getaway. And they're pretty light. They only weigh like two ounces. So it's not, they don't have a a huge amount of mass to push up into the air. Their little back legs hop up and then they like continue the motion with basically jumping off their wrists. They're jumping, they push back off the ground with full extension and then unfurl the wings and off they go. They're blurring the line between bat and bird. (laughs) Truly. I mean, it's because bats are known for dropping into flight and energetically, mechanically, it makes more sense for especially the larger species, but a lot of the, the the smaller bats can actually do that. They they can get off the ground directly. It's it's not completely necessary for them to drop into flight. So that's one thing. The other thing, they have special brain cells that are sensitive specifically to the deep breathing sounds of sleeping. So the rhythm of an animal in deep sleep is something that they are particularly attuned to so that they can know that this is a better potential prey than this one over here because this one is is more awake than this one. And so they will pick up on the breathing patterns and like that's the one and then get over to it. Nope. That is wild. And then once they're at that particular prey, we'll just say like a cow, right? They get to this cow that's in deep sleep, like measuring its circadian rhythm or whatever. It's in deep (laughs) cow REM and it hops up onto it and it has little heat sensing organs in its nose leaf. So I don't know that vampire bats echolocate. I'm actually, I've never thought about it. I've never looked to see if they do or not. It's never been a question for me until this very moment. So (laughs) I'll have to look into that. Hey, me again. I checked. They do. Carry on. But what their nose leaf does do is they it has these heat sensing organs, which are only, they're comparable to the ones found in pit vipers. And so it's able to allow them to find on the cow where blood vessels are closest to the surface. And so it will kind of like, not really sniffing, it's not really sniffing, it's, it's sensing. It'll kind of go around and find where the largest amount of blood vessels are closest to the surface so that it can take its little teeny tiny razor sharp teeth and just make a quick little incision and then start lapping the blood up. So they don't suck blood. They don't like stick a straw and like... <sighs> Sure, there's no, like, proboscis mechanism. <laughs> right. No, they, they're very much lapping similar to, like, a cat or a dog uh, at, a, at a water dish. But their mouth is developed in such a way that it makes this lapping motion very easy. They've got this divot in the in their bottom lip, their tongue, the way the tongue is shaped. Um, all of it is conducive to getting the blood from the prey into their tummy. 
So they have a, a anticoagulant in their saliva that has been named Draculin. Oh. yes. <laughs> and so Draculin allows the blood to flow freely so that it doesn't coagulate on them while they're in mid-feeding. And then once they have a full belly, their taxonomic name is Desmodus rotundus, rotund, because oh. their little bellies get pretty round and full once once oh. they've got a full belly. <laughs> little round boy. <laughs> little round boy, little little blorb. And they will just sort of take off and, and do their thing. So yeah, 10 out of 10 for effectiveness, man, because they they are astonishing in their efficiency when it comes to the hunt in particular. Because think about it. Vampire bats are only ever one to two meals away from starving to death. Blood is not a super nutrition-loaded thing, right? Sure. So they have to have it frequently. And so there's no there's no time to fool around. There's, there is no <laughs> screwing this up. It's like you find a meal or you it might be your last. Every single time is like a mission impossible, super high stakes, get in, get out. <laughs> 100%. So, and, you know, evolutionarily, they, they have developed all these adaptations to achieve that. And it's, it's really, really, really cool. So 10 out of 10. It's very high level rogue. Dude, totally. <laughs> yes. And this little guy preying on something that's probably much bigger than itself, right? Yeah. So, like, you really have to be, like, maxed out on your stealth there. Yeah, you have to. And they people, I don't think, have a have a sense for how tiny they really are. I, I mentioned earlier that they only they only weigh a couple ounces. And they're, I did a thread at one point on Twitter about, like, how many bats would it take to completely exsanguinate a human? Like, to mm -hmm. suck all the blood, to drink all the blood out of a human? And it was a lot. It's, like, literally <laughs> never going to happen. Um they can only like a full meal for a vampire bat is only like a couple tablespoons at the very most. So it's, it's not harmful. Think about it. Like from the level of evolution, it's not in their benefit to kill the prey because they need a constant source of blood. So it doesn't do them any good to actually like drain this animal of its blood. They, they just need to get enough to get their fill and then for it to heal and be totally okay the next time they come back to find it. Yeah, you wouldn't chop down your apple tree to make a pie. Yeah, no. You could. Be unwise. It, but it would not be the strategy. <laughs> That's not the not the right way to go about it. So sure. for effectiveness, I go straight to the 10. You will get no argument here from that. Let's talk ingenuity. For us, ingenuity is behavioral adaptations of things the animal is doing that might be solving problems it faces or just clever things they might be doing. What do you give them for ingenuity? So for ingenuity, thinking about its behavior and its cognitive abilities and how these help it to survive, I also go very high. That's it's got to be somewhere in the 9-10 range. For sure, yeah. So going back a second ago to hunting, right? Their energetic need for another meal. Vampire bats have developed this really complex social system, a really, really highly sophisticated social structure within their colonies that will help when it comes to the hunt. And what I mean is not only do they hunt together because they, we've discovered that they do, so they'll, they'll leave the roost as individuals to go here, there, and everywhere. And then there's evidence that they basically will say, hey, Marge, I found one over here. And oh, great, thanks. And then they'll go and feed together and then maybe split off from there again. And they'll do that a couple times before returning to the roost. So there's that. And then they develop friendships. 
with each other. Something that we might call friendships. I don't, I don't want to overly anthropomorphize it, but they, mm-hmm. but they definitely have like mutually beneficial relationships with each other. Vampire bats have been used as an example of something called reciprocal altruism, where they are cooperating and doing nice things for each other, like to, for each other. It's, it's reciprocal, right? So mm-hmm. they, they will start by, a guy that I've interviewed on on my podcast, Dr. Jerry Carter, is the one that is most into this. He, he's done a large number of studies over a lot of years on this particular thing. But what they'll do is if, let's say, a new bat enters into a colony, this one will sort of like get close to another one and be like, hey, can we can we share body warmth? Is that, a, is that acceptable? Is this a thing that I am allowed to do? And the other bat will either say essentially yes or no. It's in their best interest to say yes, because if they share body warmth with each other and they sort of build that first level of their relationship, it then goes on to the next phase of the relationship, which is grooming. So they will, they will take care of each other and groom one another. Bats will often have ectoparasites that need grooming off. They're typically very clean animals. They, they can't stand to be dirty. And so they're, they're constantly getting dirt and dust and grime out of their fur. And so they, they will help each other in that to reach the areas that maybe they can't get on themselves. And then once they have achieved that level of relationship, the next thing is they've gone out on the hunt and they haven't been able to find anything. And they didn't hear the other bat calling for Marge. And so Marge comes back and she's hungry and is like, gosh, darn it, I didn't find anything tonight. Well, the other friend, call her Frida... Frida is like, Marge, you didn't find anything? And Marge is like, nah. And Frida's like, don't worry, I got you. And starts regurgitating (laughs) blood up directly into the mouth of Marge. And will help to at least partially fill her belly so that the next evening, she's still alive to go out on the hunt again. And so bats... Vampire bats in particular, even more particular, the common vampire bats, they, they have this really complex, like, growing of a relationship. I'm not sure what the time frame is on this, mm-hmm. uh, but over some amount of time, they develop this relationship such that if, if a friend is hungry, friends don't let friends die, right? If a friend is hungry, they will give them a blood meal. They will share a blood meal with them so that they can live. And it's reciprocal. So that bat, Marge, will remember that Frida did that for her and will come back later. And if Frida is ever in a bind, will say, hey, I remember that one time that you got me. I got you. And will then regurgitate blood and share a blood meal with Frida. So it's like... It's really astonishing. And, and there was a whole bunch of different stuff, like different experiments that were done to see the extent of this and like how they congregate within the colony. Something really cool that they did was they put these like, they glued these trackers onto the back of these bats to follow them. And it like took a snapshot in time every two seconds to see where they were in relation to each other within a colony. And they were able to trace this really complex network of relationships within a colony and then taking, let's say, a stranger, putting it in the colony to see how they would treat the stranger and how the stranger would relate to them. And then, okay, now what if we take two like established relationship groups, like two groups of bats and put them in the same physical space? How will they relate with each other? And they found that they kind of stayed to themselves. It's like these bats already know each other and these bats already know each other. And there's no reason to intermingle otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so just all these like really complex, like relational behavioral things that all ultimately 
are the reason why I give them somewhere between a nine and a 10. Like we'll just call it nine and a half, but it's like their behavior and even like their ability to take off like from the ground, you know, it's like that is a physical ability, but they also have to have the intelligence to be able to say like, I can do it. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm about to get smushed by this large cow. I need to fly away and then like mm-hmm. push off and do the thing. So really, really intelligent creatures as well. For sure. And that like social intelligence feels so relatable, I think, because it mirrors a lot of like what you see in humans and other primates, you know, that like grooming each other to build the relationship and then looking out for each other when one of you is maybe experiencing a hardship. Like that just seems so familiar. Like it feels like, oh, I, I get that. That's something that we do. So we see that we're like, oh, yes, I, I know this. <laughs> yeah. One of the experiments that Jerry is wanting to do but hasn't done yet is to kind of like tamper with a relationship. Oh. See if they can break down relationships. Oh, no. Because I don't know that they have any males. We know that males will sort of like get after each other a little bit. There's like some scarring from like fighting among male vampire bats. Sure. Um, but it's it's primarily, I should say, it's primarily the females that are engaged in this reciprocal blood sharing in particular. Um, males to a lesser extent, but um, the, the hierarchy within a colony is typically female dominated. The males will control the space. Males will be very territorial of the physical space, but the, the female bats will control the relationships within that space, which is interesting as well. And so, so yeah, one, one of the things they want to know is, okay, well, we know how the relationships build, but do, but do the relationships degrade in a similar way as maybe we experience with humans? And that, that remains an unanswered question. Very interesting. There could be some bat drama. Some uh, drama? Some beef <laughs> in the bat world. Come on now. <laughs> That's really interesting. Oh, man, I love like, they're such little dudes, but they've got such like an intricate world going on. Oh, it's like the who's in Whoville. They're just on a little snowflake and you just have endearing. You have no idea that this whole universe exists on this snowflake. Oh, my gosh. Thrilling. Okay, aesthetics. Aesthetics. Let's talk aesthetics for the vampire bat. I don't know which way you're going to go on this one. (laughs) This one's straightforward. How nice they are to look at. What do you give the vampire bat for aesthetics? It's hard. I understand that I am biased. I will say that, like, if I'm comparing the vampire bat to, like, other species that I'm aware of and have seen, I would probably put them at, like, common vampire bats in particular, maybe, like, a six to seven, somewhere in there. Okay, that's fair. They're not the most adorable bat. Like, let's let's just say it that way, right? It's not the worst either. They're not the, they're not the arbiter, the wrinkle face <laughs> bat. So I like them, but there are more aesthetically pleasing bats out there. Uh, sure. So I, I at the level of aesthetic, and then too, like if you just look at a vampire bat standing there, this is not uh, insect slander by any means, <laughs> but a vampire bat just standing looks mm-hmm. kind of like a cricket. Oh, because their their legs bat legs in general are rotated 180 degrees from ours. So their their feet and their legs actually sit on their bodies backwards from from us. And so when they're on the ground, their arms bent up and their legs bent up, they go oh, wow. opposite from each other. And so they kind of have this like sort of insect-like look to them, which is sort of disconcerting when you're looking at a mammal. It's like I did yeah. not I would expect their their legs to bend forward like if they're sitting on the ground to be more like a puppy, right? 
but you'd be wrong if if you expected that um, because yeah. they they face the opposite direction, which is a little odd. Maybe a little challenging to parse when you first see it. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say a six. That's not that bad. Six out of ten for aesthetic, which some folks might get mad at me for that, and I'm I'm prepared to accept that. Yeah, well, they're not here right now. <laughs> <laughs> They're not on the microphone, are they? <laughs> I'll, I'll hear about it later, I'm sure. It's okay. Yeah, I'll send all those tweets to at GiveBats a break. <laughs> right. Or not. Before we sign off for today, first of all, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for cultivating such a such an appreciation for all too often maligned little critters that really don't deserve the bad rap that they get. I feel more deeply connected to the vampire bat because I feel like I've learned a lot of really endearing things about them today. They're really sweet animals, and uh, I'm I'm bad, you guys. <laughs> happy to draw that that latent and much deserved affection out of anybody that is willing to admit that actually they are as nice as as they seem maybe isn't the right <laughs> they're they're far nicer than they seem there you go and if perhaps you are a listener who has felt the coals of passion for bats stoked today and you are looking for a place to find more bat content where can people find your podcast and your internet content let people know where they can find you where they can keep up with you what you're up to right now stuff like that yeah, so the podcast is called Give Bats a Podcast, and it is on pretty much all the big podcasting spots, uh, Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Um, mm-hmm. You can also listen to it on my website, GiveBatsABreak.com, and then you can find me on, I'm very present on Twitter, at <laughs> uh, GiveBatsABreak, and mm-hmm. you can find me chatting about bats there pretty consistently i'm in the middle i don't know when this is going to air but i'm in the middle of something right now called bat abc which was a actually not my idea it was a cool idea from fish twitter uh Mm. they they were doing uh fish abc when it was started by kai kai the fish guy kai is our buddy kai has been on yeah um, way back when ekit came on to talk about wrasses with us so yeah so he is the one that started fish abc and i was like can I do this for bats? I'm doing it for bats. And so I did. And I'm mm-hmm. about halfway through the alphabet right now. So depending on when when this airs, I, I may or may not still be doing it. But I intend on doing it again next year uh, because there are, as I said, 1,400 species. And this is only no going to tap on 26 <laughs> of them. So yeah. So Twitter, Instagram as well. The Instagram is not something I put as much effort into, but I am also present there as well. So Instagram, Twitter, the website, the podcast, I think that about covers it. Great follow for bringing some wholesome back content to your feed. (laughs) Which, (laughs) let's admit nice to scroll through. (laughs) We all need a little more wholesome back content, don't we? We Isn't that something? I feel like that could could heal the world. Wholesome back content. (laughs) It starts here and it starts now. (laughs) Be the change. Be be the bat. Be the bat you want to see in the world. (laughs) Please, yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nate. It has been a delight. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for your passion and advocacy for bats. Uh, We will talk to you later. I will catch you on the flip side. Thanks, Nate. Bye. See ya. 
Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that if you didn't already, you have grown to love or at the very least appreciate the humble vampire bat. If you liked what you heard today, it would really mean a lot to us if you could leave us a good review on your podcatcher, like our friend Matrix ML Mo, who heard about us on another Max Fun show. You can connect with us on social media or shoot me an email at ellen at just the zoo of us.com if you have an animal you want us to talk about. Next week, you are going to hear from a brilliant guest science communicator who joined me to drop some knowledge on the tallest fella around. I'd like to wrap up by saying thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check them out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. And while you're there, it would be awesome if you could sign up for a membership to support us and the rest of the shows on the network. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our absolutely spectacular theme music. That is all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.